Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. David Potter for a conversation about Constantine I's succession and becoming Emperor of Rome. Dr. Potter is Francis W. Kelsey Collegiate Professor of Greek and Roman History at University of Michigan based in the U.S. As examples of his scholarly work, he's author of the monograph, Constantine the Emperor, which was published by Oxford University Press. He's also author of the forthcoming book, Disruption, Why Things Change, which will be published by Oxford University Press in June of this year, so 2021. And Professor Potter told me that Constantine is one of the historical figures that he wrote about in the book. Welcome to the call, David. Thank you very much, Andrew. It's nice to be here. Nice to see you. Um, and uh, yes, uh, Constantine uh, really does belong at the front of a book of disruption because he really shows you how to, how to change things. Um, his conversion to Christianity and uh, setting the Roman Empire on a completely new uh, intellectual course is one of the uh, really major changes uh, in history. Uh, and Constantine did it um, in a way that I think is very important uh, by setting an example for people of what he would like to see, but never compelling people uh, to follow him down that path. Uh, he was what we might call nowadays a radical centrist. Uh, and the result was that the intellectual direction of the Mediterranean world changed. Okay, and we'll probably uh, get into, we're going to focus more on the uh, early period of his life in, the, uh, in his actual becoming a Roman emperor. Um, but if we have some time, um, we could probably touch, highlight uh, some of those points as well. Um, just so that they're not cliffhangers for anybody listening uh, to the to the episode. So can you can you summarize? Let's start with a broad question, David. Can you summarize who, in, in your words, who Constantine was? Constantine was the son of Constantius, uh, who was a deputy emperor and very briefly co-emperor. Uh, of Rome at the beginning of the 4th century uh, AD. Um, he was sent uh, to be educated at the courts, uh, court of the Emperor Diocletian because he was outside of the line of succession. Uh, once his father had become a deputy emperor, uh, he had remarried. Uh, he divorced Constantine's uh, mother, Helena, uh, and Constantine grew up really expecting to be a imperial bureaucrat uh, of some sort, uh, but very much uh, on the wings of power. It was a series of accidents uh, that brought him to the throne uh, in 306. Okay. Do we... What's known about his birth? Uh, do scholars know where and when he was born? Constantine was born in the city of Niasis, as it was in antiquity, which is the modern uh, city of Nish. Uh, there is a dispute about when he was born, but the uh, most likely date is somewhere in the vicinity of 282. Uh, later on, as an effort to make him seem older, his later biographer Eusebius uh, backdated his birth by a decade. 
but it's pretty clear from the dates of the births of his children, uh, from the way that he's described when he first takes the throne, uh, that he was in his mid-twenties uh, when he became emperor. Okay. Uh, so, okay. So when he's a child, can you describe what the Roman Empire was, the contours of it at that time, from a geography perspective, so what it was demarcated to, and then also, can you describe how it functioned at a high level from a governance perspective? Absolutely. The empire at that point uh, extended from Hadrian's Wall in Britain uh, around the northern rim of North Africa uh, to the uh, Euphrates River um, uh, and therefore the borders of Iraq. Uh, and would extend north through uh, what is now Turkey and then back around through the Balkans uh, and the northern border of the Roman Empire would be along the Danube River uh, and then the Rhine. Uh, the empire itself uh, was in a state of flux when Constantine was born. The imperial system which had been established in uh, the very end of the first century BCE, beginning of the first century CE, of a single emperor based in Rome had effectively broken down. Uh, and just after Constantine was born, uh, Diocletian uh, took the throne and began uh, to institute a shared uh, system of imperial governance where there would be two senior emperors and two junior emperors. Uh, before Diocletian did that, Perhaps the most dangerous job in the world was being Roman emperor, uh, because if we go through a list of them uh, from uh, the late uh, teens to uh, 200s uh, onwards, um, only one of them uh, died a natural death. Uh, one mm -hmm. of them died in battle, one of them died as a, uh, mm -hmm. uh, a captive of the Persians, and the rest were murdered by their men. Okay, um, yeah, very tumultuous uh, time in this period of Roman history. Uh, why did Diocletian choose to create the structure of two senior and uh, two Roman uh, rulers? And how, how much influence did the East of the empire have at this point in time during Constantine's, the early period of his life? Well, Diocletian primarily based himself in the Eastern provinces uh, and hence the center of gravity was going to be in what we would now uh, see as Western Turkey, uh, where, mm -hmm. where Diocletian had his primary um, palace. The mm -hmm. system that he set up uh, was based on an understanding that the empire could no longer be run by a single person, that an imperial presence was necessary to ensure the loyalty of the armies uh, in the different parts of the empire. Uh, and also because in the previous 50 years, uh, Rome's ability to dominate its frontiers had seriously uh, disintegrated, uh, the Rome's neighbors were routinely raiding quite deeply into Roman territory. So it would be necessary to have a senior commander in the area uh, who you could rely on. Uh, the Diocletian went from two emperors to four emperors, 
uh, after a series of uh, military embarrassments in the West made it clear that he needed to have an extra layer of protection between the senior emperor um, and the front line of action. Okay, and were these uh, four different um, emperors, that you can call them emperors, right? The four of them? Yes, absolutely. Okay, yeah, seniors and juniors. Um, were they all spread out, or did they concentrate most of their time in the East? Uh, they were spread out. Uh, when Diocletian appointed uh, Maximian as his first co-emperor, uh, Maximian went West and really never came to the Eastern part of the empire again, and uh, Diocletian only saw him a couple of times in the rest of his life. Um, when Maximian appointed Constantius as his deputy, uh, it's quite probable that he and Diocletian uh, were never in the same space for the rest of Diocletian's reign. On the other hand, and this is what becomes very important for the rise of Constantine, is that the deputy that Diocletian chose for himself, Galerius, was somebody who Diocletian saw a great deal of, was some person who Diocletian uh, knew very well and had come to trust uh, implicitly. Okay. And if there's two seniors, did they share power, or did one have power over the other? Is that where you get into the term deputy? Yes, it is. Uh, Diocletian was always recognized as the senior emperor, and uh, Maximian uh, pretty much knew to do what he was told. I mean, the, the crucial moment here came actually when Diocletian decided that they should both abdicate. Uh, Maximian wasn't too clean, uh, keen on abdication, but Diocletian made it very clear that this is what was going to happen. They were both going to step down on the same day and be succeeded on the same day by their deputies. Okay. Um, Constantine's father, Constantius, you mentioned was a deputy. So was he a senior or a junior emperor? Constantius was a junior emperor to Maximian in the West until 305. Uh, when Maximian stepped down, Constantius then becomes uh, the senior emperor. Okay, and for clarification, Constantius, when he's senior emperor, would he have been considered uh, the prime uh, senior emperor? Yes, he was, because he'd been appointed slightly ahead of Galeria, so he was the senior person, um, but... Again, since Diocletian didn't really know him, he had created a more powerful position for Galerius at the time of succession. Okay. I think we worked our way through that sufficiently, given the, uh, the, the, the time uh, circumscription. <laughs> um, what's, what's known about the early period of uh, Constantine's life then, from uh, military activity, how he's educated, what's known about his religious beliefs at that time? Constantine's uh, early life was shaped uh, by his father's uh, remarriage to a daughter of Maximian, at which point Diocletian and I, uh, sorry, at which point uh, Constantine was sent to the court of Diocletian. Uh, and he was brought up there with other sort of majors, sons of major civil servants. Uh, to be a staff officer. Okay. Uh, he would have been educated. One of the connections he quite possibly made at that point uh, in his late teens would have been with the professor of Latin uh, in Nicomedia, 
uh, who would have been in charge of the rhetorical education of young men, who was, the, who was a Christian, Lactantius. Uh, we also know that uh, Constantine served on the staff of Constantine of Diocletian's deputy Galerius, uh, that he was present uh, at the time that Galerius inflicted major defeats on the Persians, which was a huge uh, event in Roman history uh, because the Romans had been badly battered by Persian armies in the previous uh, 40 years, and Galerius's victory really reversed the, that direction. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that he went to Egypt um, with Diocletian, uh, so he pretty much traveled around the Eastern Empire uh, as part of the court, and at some point, uh, probably around 300, uh, he met his uh, first wife, uh, Minervina, uh, and was married to her. And they would have a son um, probably around the uh, 304, 305. Okay. Um, what languages is it believed that he was trained in? The government language of the Roman Empire was Latin, so Constantine would have grown up speaking Latin. Uh, but being in the East, he probably uh, got to know Greek pretty well uh, in addition. Okay. Um, what's known about his father, Constantius, and his mother, Helena's uh, religious beliefs? Constantius served with the Emperor Aurelian in the 270s uh, and was present uh, in 272 when Aurelian uh, felt that he won a massive victory in his effort to reunite the empire uh, over the Palmyrians with the aid of Invincible Sun. Uh, and uh, there's a certain amount of evidence to suggest that Constantius saw himself as a particular worshiper of a sun god. Uh, Apollo will show up early on in the uh, iconography of Constantine. The sun god shows up a lot, and that really seems to be connected with uh, Constantius. Um, as for Helena, uh, we know very little about uh, her beliefs at this time. Uh, later, of course, uh, she would become a very prominent Christian, uh, but at this point, uh, it is quite likely that like um, other aristocratic women in the uh, Roman uh, court, uh, she would have worshipped the traditional, uh, traditional gods. There was a story going around, of course, that she was a very humble birth, uh, but that was a very much later story. Um, she was actually born uh, in Western Turkey. Okay, and so that there's sufficient background for someone very new to this topic, um, can you summarize what the traditional gods at that time would have been in that area for someone, in, in the case that that was what she was worshipping? Yes, the uh, traditional gods are the, are the Olympic, Olympian uh, pantheon uh, with uh, Jupiter slash Zeus, uh, and then Hera or Juno, depending on whether you're doing it in uh, Greek or Latin, uh, as mm -hmm. the uh, chief gods. Uh, and then the rest of the gods are to some degree related to them. Uh, uh, Apollo 
uh, and Artemis, brothers and uh, brother and sister, Apollo, the sun god, Artemis, the goddess of the hunt, uh, Ceres, uh, the um, uh, goddess of uh, prosperity and um, and farming. Uh, uh, also would be Demeter uh, in Greek. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would have Ares or Mars, the god of war. Um, and uh, you have Poseidon, the god of the sea, or Neptune on the Roman side. Uh, you have Pluto, the god of uh, the underworld. Uh, so each god has a specific area that they're in charge of. Um, and then there will be uh, a sense that there are local divinities or local spirits uh, who look after uh, different areas uh, and you would worship them uh, as well. Um, you know, gods of the, of the forests, gods of streams. Um, this is certainly a very prominent part of uh, religious belief uh, in, the, in the western part of the empire. Uh, then you have as well uh, the god Hercules, who is, of course, uh, a very important figure uh, for Roman emperors because uh, he was the son of Zeus by a, a mortal woman who then becomes a god. Uh, and because of his 12 labors wiping out uh, various monsters around the earth, uh, he was seen as a model for uh, Roman emperors. And the emperor Maximian actually takes the name Herculius. Um, mm. Mr. Hercules uh, for himself, uh, whereas Diocletian uh, will associate himself uh, much more closely with the god Jupiter. Mm. What do you believe when you've sifted through uh, the evidence and the records and stuff? What, what, what religious orientation do you believe Constantine had in his uh, early period of his life? The most important piece of evidence for Constantine's uh, belief early on is actually a uh, document of the early 320s, right after the uh, imperial palace had been struck by lightning, uh, at which point Constantine says, and by the way, bring in all the harispiques and the people who interpret signs um, when buildings are struck by lightning. This is a decade after he converted to Christianity, but he still hadn't given up the traditional beliefs you know, you've got to be a little careful about, about the traditional gods, don't want to offend them. Um, certainly, uh, prior to 312, uh, the god he associates with most often is the sun god, uh, which would have been, again, following uh, along with his father. Okay. Um, but he's certainly a traditional believer. Is a term for that uh, solar monotheism? Would scholars use that term? Now, solar monotheism is a term that we use, and um, it's probably better to vary it slightly to solar henotheism, which is the notion that the sun god is number one, not that there is just one sun god, because the sun god can, will coexist with all kinds of other, uh, other divinities. Uh, but certainly this idea that the sun god is number one um, oh. is a quite prominent prominent one okay understood um what's known about minerva from uh like her her background and uh, how the two of them eventually coupled well minervina is somebody we know i fear very little about uh she would have been 
a woman of Roman upper class. She clearly would have come from a family uh, that moved in court circles. Uh, Constantine would have been uh, as a young royal, as it were, even if he's not in the line of succession, an extremely desirable match uh, for an aristocratic uh, family. She will have uh, come from a family that would have been based in the eastern part of the empire. Um, again, some people have questioned whether or not they were actually married, uh, but her son Crispus was number one in the line of succession after Constantine became emperor and certainly was regarded as a legitimate child of a legitimate marriage. Okay. In his childhood or adolescence, um, as a teenager, was he being groomed to be an emperor, do you think, or something else? Uh, Constantine would not have been groomed to be emperor because Diocletian was trying to eliminate the idea um, of biological succession. Uh, he believed that you had to be qualified for the job by having proved that you could do it. Um, and there had been an awful lot of really failed dynastic successions in the previous uh, century. Uh, and so uh, I think that very definitely Constantine would have been sort of brought up to be a functional bureaucrat, uh, but also probably somebody who should not expect to get too much in the public eye. Yeah, uh, he would have thought to learn his place as a, as a lower level bureaucrat. Uh, which was, in fact, what happened with all of Constantius's other children. After Constantine became emperor, they sort of withdraw from public life. Okay, so that's probably a good segue then to speak about his accession. So, can you can you speak about his accession? What 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 happens if he wasn't being groomed to be a Roman emperor? How did he end up becoming a Roman emperor? What happened when Diocletian uh, abdicated? was that he had appointed the two new deputies, uh, one man by the name of Maximinus and another one by the name of Severus. Uh, and so Constantius and his staff uh, were faced with the fact that they were going to be out of power if Constantius died. And they were quite uneasy with the presence of friends of Galerius all over the place uh, and what Constantius did, Constantius understood his own state of health uh, pretty well, and he wrote to Galerius and said, you have to return my son from your court uh, to my court. Uh, and uh, Galerius did that. Perhaps the single biggest mistake Galerius made, we uh, uh, sort of visualized Constantine and Minervina and possibly Helena uh, and young baby Crispus all getting in a little cart and going back uh, to uh, France, to Gaul, uh, where Constantius was. And at the end of 305, beginning of 306, Constantius went on campaign in Britain and took Constantine with him. And it's in the course of that period of about seven months that Constantine is introduced to the general staff, uh, gains the confidence of the general staff, so that they feel that when Constantius dies, they can make him their emperor uh, and you know, secure their part of the emperor empire uh, against uh, the interests of uh, Galerius and his lieutenants. Okay, 
And a point of clarification, the, the two seniors and the two juniors, is that what would be called the tetrarchy as a concept? Yes, the system of four rulers is called the tetrarchy. Uh, the two senior emperors are called the Augusti, and the two junior emperors are called the Caesars. Okay, so at this point in time when he's, uh, whether he knows it or not, he's acceding to the, he's working his way to, towards the throne. Did the tetrarchy still exist at this point in time in Rome? Yes, it does. And uh, at this point, Constantius is actually the senior Augustus. Uh, Galerius is a junior Augustus. And then the two Caesars are Maximinus and Severus, um, both of them uh, close associates of Galerius. Okay. And uh, I'll probably, once we kind of find that point when he's the Roman emperor, I'll probably swing back and ask uh, if he changes that um, policy, uh, okay. governance uh, policy at, at all, just so that that's not a cl cliffhanger as well for anyone. Um, okay, so, okay, so can you speak then about the actual succession point and then what, what, what happens with him being... Um, uh, you know, anointed, if you will, uh, Roman emperor. Constantine's accession is a moment of really uh, high drama. It's essentially a coup d'etat launched by the general staff in York. And today, if you go to uh, the York Cathedral, uh, go down underneath it, you can find yourself in the headquarters uh, building, uh, what was once the headquarters building of the uh, Roman garrison there, uh, and stand where Constantine would have become emperor. Uh, he then moved incredibly rapidly to secure control over uh, France because the then deputy emperor, whose name was Severus, would have become the senior uh, Augustus and would have been able to choose his own Caesar, which certainly would not have been Con uh, Constantine. Uh, so Constantine, though, uh, sends his uh, messengers uh, really as soon as he gets on the throne to secure the garrisons and the security uh, of the borders in southern France. Uh, and he says uh, he's quite willing just to be a deputy at this point. Thank you very much. Uh, he'll be Constantine Caesar. Uh, but by the way, all these troops are on my, uh, serve me. Uh, so mm. he's sort of negotiating a fracturing of the system as it had been set up by Diocletian uh, by asserting his right to rule as the son of Constantius. Um, and because he is very good at this uh, and the staff is on his side, um, Severus can't move against them. So did he start as one of four emperors? He did. Um, and the most junior and most unwelcome of them. Uh, but there was very shortly after he seized the throne, uh, a second rebellion uh, in October. Uh, and this was uh, Maximian, who didn't like having to abdicate, uh, supporting his own son, Maxentius, to seize power from Severus. Uh, so there are two coups in the summer and early fall of 306, uh, which put the two sons of the two Western emperors of the previous generation on the throne. Okay, so what's known about his ambitions then? Was he, because this is a very tumultuous time, it's not like there's perfect harmony going on in the, in the Roman Empire. Um, do you believe that he had ambitions to be a sole Roman emperor at some point by this point in time? Or do you think that uh, some of the 
um, I don't know if you call it like coups and things like that, uh, occurred uh, in part because of those rebellions are also happening on the other side as as well, and and he's he's responding to to that as he goes along. I think that Constantine had a pretty clear sense of what he wanted at a very early stage. Um, we know that Constantine uh, could be very cautious in the way he said things in public. I mean, the most obvious example of this is he converts to Christianity in 312, but he doesn't spread the news around the whole empire. He keeps that to himself. I think when he took the throne uh, in 306 for his own security, uh, he knew that if he's going to survive, he is going to have to set up his own system of government. Okay, and then... Um... Can you uh, speak about the inflection point then when uh, he is now the sole ruler of Rome? Yes, Constantine fought his way to the position of being sole ruler. Uh, initially, uh, he acquiesced in being uh, you know, number four of four. Uh, but then after Galerius's death, uh, Constantine attacked uh, Maxentius, who was actually his brother-in-law, the son of Maximian, uh, defeated him outside of Rome at the Battle of Milvian Bridge um, in October of 312. Uh, at that point, he made an alliance with another one of the successors of Galerius, a man by the name of Licinius, who married his half-sister. Licinius really hated um, the last member of this group, a man named Maximinus. Mm -hmm. So Constantine split power with Licinius, after Licinius had defeated Maximinus. Um, and that split lasted for about a decade, increasingly hostile uh, until Constantine uh, overthrew uh, Licinius in 324 and became sole emperor. Okay, so in that, I think you said 10, ten years, um, where was Constantine ruling from for the most part and where was Licinius ruling from? Constantine uh, tended to rule from Trier in southern uh, Germany. Uh, that had been the primary capital of Constantius. Uh, he would go to Rome from time to time, uh, but maintaining the sort of control of the Rhine frontier is an important aspect of what he does. Uh, and then if we go to the east, Licinius is going to be based primarily at Nicomedia, which had been the primary capital of uh, of uh, Diocletian. Okay, and does that kind of dovetail naturally into the Tetrarchy being dissolved by this point, 324? Or even early, earlier, because there's only two, you said, for 10 years? No, uh, the Tetrarchy is basically dissolved uh, in 312 when Constantine uh, overthrows Maxentius, uh, and in 313 when Licinius defeats Maximinus, and we go from uh, four to two. Okay. Is there anything in his early life that you believe is very pertinent that you feel that um, we haven't touched on that is worthwhile mentioning? Yes. I mean, Constantine uh, was a very able soldier. Um, he, his campaigns 
especially against Maxentius Cho, an extraordinary degree of skill. Uh, and his early life would have trained him uh, to do this. He, Einstein also led from the front uh, very often. I mean, you can imagine his subordinates are like, come on, you're the emperor, get back. Uh, but no, I mean, he, um, he led the charge, quite literally. Uh, so he had grown up, uh, as I said, to be a, uh, a bureaucrat, but he'd also been trained as a soldier. Uh, and uh, he had, uh, I think, uh, developed um, very real uh, skills of command. Uh, he had followed Galerius around and Galerius was an extraordinarily able soldier, and I think that Constantine learned a great deal from him. Hmm. So if, uh, kind of circling back to an original um, kind of commentary we had at, at the start, if you were to summarize, um, so someone who's new to Con Constantine, we covered for the sake of time more of the part of his life. If you were to summarize his reign uh, for listeners, how would you summarize his reign now as Roman emperor? Constantine's reign was one of extraordinary change. Um, not only did he replace the previous system of government, the Tetrarchy, uh, with a new dynastic system of government, uh, he replaced the traditional belief system of the Roman Empire based in the, on the uh, worship of the Olympian gods uh, with Christianity, which was a completely fringe intellectual movement. Uh, but Constantine uh, converted to Christianity because, as he knew, the emperor needed a god to look after him. Um, the emperor would succeed because he was the agent of a god, and the Christian god was a god who Diocletian had disliked, who Galerius had disliked. If Constantine is going to succeed in overthrowing their regimes, he's going to succeed with the god that they showed such contempt for as his primary backer. It has been uh, wonderful having you on the call, David, and if we both have the opportunity sometime, it'd be great to have you on for another episode to speak about his reign. I'd love to do that. I think Constantine's a terrifically interesting character. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's great, David. So again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Potter wrote, Constantine the Emperor, and the forthcoming book, Disruption, Why Things Change. The latter book is scheduled for release June of this year, so 2021. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. David and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.